Hello, and welcome back to another episode of What a Week. I am joined, as always, by my friend, Andrew Pettigrew, coming all the way from the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. Andrew, how are you today? I'm very well, Zach. How are you? Also doing well. Yeah, uh, the sun is shining. Cannot complain. I think autumn, I mean, this isn't really exactly weather. It's more just sort of seasonality, but autumn's great. Uh, you know, pumpkins, chill, cool air, uh, the smell of leaves, like crunching fresh leaves under your, not fresh leaves, you know, freshly fallen leaves under your feet. Just wonderful. And so we've had a nice little stretch of just like quintessentially perfect autumn days here. And, uh, and Sally and I are, are loving it. So that's what's, that's what's new with us. How about you? It's very beautiful here too. I know we're doing the dad thing again and talking about weather, but, uh, it's, it's what you do. And it is, it's a beautiful time of year in a lot of places. So understandable. Here's one um, good thing. I mean, when I talk about, I don't like to talk about weather so much in the, uh, in the really hot summer when it's so hot, you don't really want to go outside or in the really cold winter, but you know, there's, there's something about the, the weather that allows you to go outside. Like what we're really talking about is enjoying the great outdoors. And that's always good. I don't want to suffer from tree blindness. Have you heard of this phenomenon? Tree blindness? No, tell me about it. Tree blindness is basically an, an inability to appreciate trees around you. And this is obviously sort of a, an indicator of a general inability to sort of understand and recognize the great creation that surrounds us. So I was reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, I think it was an op-ed, but it was encouraging people to not suffer from tree blindness, to you know buy a book about trees, take a class on trees so that when they're outside, they can look around and identify, oh, this is a you know, so-and-so oak. I suffer from tree blindness to some degree, I have to admit. I'm definitely not a, a tree expert. But this autumn has been helpful for me to to look around and just be like, wow, the leaves on this tree are really beautiful. What is this tree? And my wife knows more than I do, so about pretty much all subjects, but uh, about trees in particular. So she, you know, helps me understand this stuff. And um, it's just it's just nice. So being able to recognize all the stuff around us. Uh, my wife's also taking the initiative to do this with our kids. We homeschool, I think you know that. And they do these like these little nature outings to a nature preserve near our house. And they come back, you know, arms full of of leaves and various things, things that they've collected. And then they learn about them. They have they have tree and insect guides and other guides for other fauna. Uh, and so they get to explore the world around them and hopefully not suffer from tree blindness as well. So it's it's been uh, it's been good. I love. Uh, yeah, I love nature. It's fantastic. Well, I do, too. I, we have a giant giant oak tree in our front yard which i love wow. very much it's uh i think it's one of the best trees in the neighborhood and uh yeah i'm very proud of that and uh i i hope i i, I don't i think i do suffer from tree blindness in the sense that i don't know what a lot of trees are but same i know what an oak tree looks like and i do really appreciate the one that i have so yeah my kids are pretty good about that stuff maybe because they also have have spent uh, part of their education being homeschooled and um and just in general, kind of engaging with things that I think I, I didn't really when I was younger. Yeah, no, same. I, although I did, I spent a lot of time outside as a kid, just I think by virtue of the fact, I mean, you probably did as well, because we didn't have cell phones and TikTok, and we didn't have at least a ton of computer games, video games. So I spent a lot of my childhood just running around outside exploring everything. And it was great. I would not trade it for anything. Yeah, me too. And maybe this will relate to the close read that we're going to do today. I remember yeah. just... Uh, hanging out with all the kids in the neighborhood. You know, some of them were from, you know, what we might call nice families. Some of them were not. And it was just kind of a mix of everybody. And it was just kind of what you did as a boy and as a girl, you know, everybody just kind of did it. And things weren't so intentional. Like I, I don't think I ever once, I'd never heard of a play date, for example, until I was right. a parent. Yes. Never heard of it. Definitely didn't go on any when I was a kid. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was so organic too. I didn't have my own cell phone. My friends didn't have theirs. So we would just run over to their house, knock on the door. Hey, you guys want to play outside? Or they'd be playing outside. We would run out to join them, vice versa. And yep. it was just fantastic. So things would just sort of happen organically. Uh, and yeah, it was great. It was great. We had, an, we had an, and for five years of my childhood, we had an acre of lawn. Oh, wow. And, you know, to those who are listening who have a lot of land, that sounds like nothing. But to those who are, uh, you know, like us now on like a fifth of an acre in a sort of city environment or suburb environment, an acre is huge. It's just a giant playground. So, we would have soccer matches and baseball matches and all kinds of things on our acre. And it was just fantastic. We had epic games of capture the flag. It was, it was great. But yeah, I think it does, it does feed into our close reads. So maybe we'll, we'll revisit this when we come back to that. Um, yeah. Andrew, I know you wanted to revisit our post-liberal comments from last time. So um, what should we talk about there? Well, yeah. For those who listened last week, we, we, uh, we 
explored this article by Michael Hanby from New Polity about uh, post-liberalism. And uh, I think that was probably the the toughest article that we have explored so far in our close reads on the show. No doubt. And it's, you know, it's just kind of a tough topic, really, because it's got so much kind of theory and philosophy stuff, but then also it has these like real world implications. And so, I don't know, it's just kind of like turning over my head, like, you know, okay, so there are some post-liberal people and there are some like classical liberals and, you know, there are these different camps and stuff. And I was just thinking how basically out of my depth I feel about the whole question and just how I sort of want to, you know, I want to do my part and be a good citizen. I, one of the things I don't like so much about the post-liberal thing is the whole coercion thing. I, I just, maybe I have a little bit of like punk rock spirit within me or something that I just, I really hate the idea of being told what to do. On the other hand, I think it's important to have good laws and to like, you know, to have ways of enforcing them and to have certain principles that we stand by as a culture and all that stuff. So I don't know. The The only other thing that I would say is uh, I've been doing a lot of research on uh, like the papacy in the late 20th century for one of my book projects and been reading a lot. And actually one of my colleagues here, our mutual friend, Bobby Mixa, man, he and I talk about St. John Paul II all the time. And something I always think about John Paul II is like when I think about this question of like post-liberalism and all that kind of thing is just like the whole authoritarianism question. And just like what a funny thought it is to me that like John Paul II would just as a test case in my brain, I think of him, but it could be somebody else. But like what a funny thought it is for me that he would you know, to imagine him like emerging from communist Poland and then thinking that like the solution to having a good society is to kick out the bad authoritarians and have like good author authoritarians in their place. You know, I just don't think somebody who came from that world would think that way. They would just think in terms of like, no, like we probably should should avoid the whole the whole authoritarian thing, period. And, um, you know, I, that's how I feel, I have to say. And I am a fan, I'll just out myself. I'm a fan of the document um, uh, Dignitatis Humanae, the document on uh, religious liberty from Vatican II. So I don't know. I have various sympathies, man. I, I like a lot of what are those po some of those post-liberal guys do. And um, I really liked Michael Hanby's critique. Um, but man, you know, I think I mostly need to just stick to watching movies. I'll tell you. Well, those are all good comments, I think. When we started this at the outset, this this what a week programming, Andrew, I think one of the comments I made is that look, we're we'll be we'll be unafraid to sort of tackle not sort of tackle, we will be unafraid to tackle the hot button issues of the day. Not from a stance of we always know what the answer will be, but from a stance of uh of sort of epistemic humility. We don't necessarily know, but also we need to talk about these things and try to get to the bottom of what's going on here. And I think this liberalism, post liberalism debate is a really important one because it's happening right in front of us. It is happening all around us, even if it's not using these sort of intellectual terms that Hanby uses in his critique of post-liberalism. But uh, I'm sympathetic to people on all sides of this camp. You know, on the, uh, on the liberal side, you have people like David French who sort of gets, a, gets, gets knocked a lot for his various stances on liberalism. And I disagree with him pretty strongly on a lot of his takes vis-a-vis -vis liberalism. But also on that side is George Weigel, uh, a, a, a friend and indeed confidant even of St. John Paul II, uh, who, who believes very strongly in these ideas like Dignitatis Humanae, for example, and uh, in the importance of liberalism and of human freedom uh, that enables flourishing in the virtues. On the other side, I think the post-liberals also have really good points when they point to some of the excesses of liberalism what we might call sort of the the apotheosis of liberalism recently when we look at just crazy things happening all around us. It's the type of things that, you know, the, the Joan of Arc plays, like we talked about in Misinformation a couple weeks ago. Um, those things, when you see, when you look at liberalism and say liberalism got us here, it's very natural, I think, I think even only natural to ask what happened and what went wrong. And to further question, is this worth it? Or is something so fatally flawed here because it leads to this spot? So I think those critiques are good. Now, I also won't point fingers and name names, but I have noticed a tendency among the post-liberals to, uh, to have a sort of trolling persona uh, in various online communities that is less than helpful. And obviously on those things, I disagree with them. And then to your point about the coercion, I, I mean, this is, this is a tough one. I mean, 
governments and laws in general are coercive, right? There's no getting around that. It's it's coercive of the government to say you can't do this or we will throw you in prison. And the government does that pretty much anywhere except in an anarchy. And there is no really no no real anarchy. There, I guess I guess there are functional anarchies, but there's no nominal anarchy anywhere in the U.S. I mean, in, anywhere in the world. Um. So government's coercive by its very nature. I think the question is just sort of how coercive do we want to be, and on what issues do we want to be coercive. And here, you know, I obviously don't think that we should coerce people into going to church, for example. Uh, I, I do believe that religious freedom is important, an important positive right for the government to ensure and uphold. However, I'm pretty pro, for example, anti-obscenity laws and think that we should be coercive and not allowing people to produce pornography. So right. there, I also think the post-liberals have a point. You know, I disagree strongly with David French, for example, on, you know, drag queen story hour. Should that be allowed? No, it should be illegal. <laughs> That's, I, I, I think pretty strongly that should be illegal. Right. So yeah, it is a tough question, but, but, and the Hanby piece was tough, uh, and I'm certainly no expert in these matters, but I enjoyed the Hanby piece because it offered a very strong critique of both post-liberalism and liberalism. It wasn't unilaterally a critique of post-liberalism. It was a critique of the whole scheme. And I think that's a good corrective for, for Christians to answer that we will not find a perfect government this side of the veil, that uh, everything we do has to be oriented toward this eschatological hope of fulfillment of all things in Christ. I had a conversation with Larry Chapp on his Gaudium at Spez podcast earlier this week. And as you, as you know, Andrew, he's named his podcast Gaudium at Spez 22, his, his blog project, because uh, of that line in Gaudium at Spez that talks about uh, the Christological center of everything. And I think Hanby's, Hanby's point, maybe not exactly in that language, we did use very sacramental language to get there, is that everything does have a Christological center, and that is what needs to be uh, at the heart of every human endeavor, especially, and in this case particularly, government. So it's a, it's a broad critique, and it's a broad-reaching one, and we did not do justice to the essay, obviously, in the time that we had, uh, or even with the sort of background that you and I have, but I think it was a good discussion to have nonetheless, and, and help me sort of refine my critiques of both liberalism and post-liberalism as well. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of you know, and I've talked to you before about my admiration for T.S. Eliot's The Idea of a Christian Society. And, um, you know, there's a whole like kind of strain of thought, uh, you know, that is really about kind of, you know, laws and and um, culture and everything that sort of embraces the idea that we could we could actually have a Christian society that I'm I'm 100 percent on board with that. I love that. And, um, you know, I'm I. I'm uh, not at all a libertarian. I, I don't. I don't think that we should just sort of, you know, live and let live. Um, but I guess may you know maybe I'm just kind of uh, kind of um, unreformed in my uh, or or sort of naive or something in my uh, my hope for um, some something akin to a democratic uh, form of governance or something like you know if if I'm going to be made to do something I want a say. I want, I want to be, I want to be, I want to vote in, in whether it's something that I have to do or not. So, yeah, I don't know. Lots of weird thoughts. Again, I should probably just watch movies and write about them instead of worrying about the political questions. Well, that is what you're doing. You are writing about movies on your, especially two upcoming book projects. As um, much as I, I can. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we can move on from, from this, but I think it was a good discussion. I'm sure we'll return to it because again, it's, it's really important that this discussion is happening everywhere. The one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Andrew, is this John Fetterman situation in Pennsylvania. We talked yeah. about it a little bit. I think it was just last week. And since then, John Fetterman had a debate with Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz. Uh, and the debate went, went terribly. Um, it was very obvious to everyone watching that, that John Fetterman is having enduring, uh, lasting effects from his stroke that he suffered in May. And it was, I think it was really just difficult to watch because, um, because it was clear that this man was having such, uh, having problems responding to his debate opponents, responding to even basic questions from the moderator. And we talked about this last week and, uh, I think we were fair in our assessment. I don't think I said anything, uh, that I didn't intend to say, but I want to, I want to reiterate here sort of what I see the problem is. The, pr the problem is not that John Fetterman has a disability. That's certainly not the problem. The problem is that he concealed this disability and the extent of the disability to the disadvantage of the voters of Pennsylvania. And so um, it is only now when his name is guaranteed to be on the ballot and it is too late to replace him with another candidate that he is being upfront with his condition, and even so only partially upfront. 
Um, but everyone can see that his his stroke condition was much worse than he initially presented. I think it was the, the day after or two days after his stroke. He told everyone via Twitter that his doctor said there was no cognitive impairment. But there's clearly some sort of impairment. You know, the, uh, I'm not a doctor or a neurologist, and some people have said it's just an auditory processing thing. Some have said it actually seems like a cognitive impairment. The point is it doesn't really matter uh, because he can't respond to basic questions and make simple statements of fact without getting all tongue-tied. Now, I'm certainly not mocking him for that, and people who are mocking him should not do that, and they should be ashamed of that because that is mocking someone's disability. But the point is it's a real disability, and it is fair for voters to ask questions about whether or not this disability prevents this person from carrying out to the full extent uh, as required the duties of the office of senator for the state of U.S., uh, the U.S. state of Pennsylvania. Um, the other thing this has made me think about, though, is the extent to which we construct our own realities and which we sort of believe these paradigms of our, own, of our own construction. Three weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, NBC News, Dasha Burns, this is what we talked about last week. Uh, she interviewed Fetterman, and she said in her report, in the conversation that we had with John Fetterman before we rolled tape, it was not clear that he was understanding what we were saying. And she was raked over the coals by many of her fellow journalists for that. There's a journalist named Kara Swisher who's done a lot of tech reporting for decades. And Kara very publicly on Twitter raked Dasha Burns over the coals and said she's lying, basically, and said this is absolutely not true. Anyone who spent time with John Fetterman knows it's not true. I spent time with him for 30 minutes and it was great, yada, yada, he's fine. Uh, obviously, in the, in the aftermath of that debate, people understand that Dasha Burns was correct in that situation and Kara was lying. Now, there are two takes two possible you know, takes on what happened there. Either Kara Swisher was lying about it and knew that what Dasha was reporting was true, but chose to articulate something that she knew was not true, or that Kara had, uh, that Kara actually really believed that John Fetterman was totally fine, that she had had a 30-minute conversation with John Fetterman and thought this person is totally capable of answering basic questions and stating basic, basic things. The first of those is concerning because we don't want journalists lying to us. The second of those is, I think, rather terrifying because it just speaks to the extent to which we can convince ourselves of gross untruths, despite the evidence that's right in front of us. We so insulate ourselves with, with you know, bubbles that we don't have our views ever challenged. And this is not a particularly novel take on my part. People have been talking about this sort of misinformation chamber uh, for a long time. But the misinformation goes both ways. This is not a problem unique to the American right. It happens on the American right. I think the, you know, the 2020 election was stolen is a great example of this misinformation echo chamber. There are people, even still, uh, but especially then, who believe the election was stolen, and no amount of uh, empirical evidence contrary to that would convince them of that. They were just, they were convinced of it because they had built this sort of thought bubble around themselves. And I think the same thing happens on the left as well. And the outcome is that we have people who are not simply interested in this sort of demonization of their opponents because they are lying and just, just sort of um, straightforwardly malicious, but rather that they really believe the lies they tell themselves and contort themselves in all, all sorts of myriad ways to adjust themselves to that reality. Uh, and that's, that's when things really began to unravel, re begin to unravel. That is where, uh, in the words of the great poet, the center cannot hold. So um, the Fetterman thing is, is a small, I think, microcosm of this example. And uh, when applied to journalists, and perhaps even to you know, Fetterman himself, you know, the lies we tell ourselves. Uh, and it's very concerning to me for all of those reasons. But obviously, I wish uh, I wish John Fetterman the best and wish him a healthy uh, recovery. Hopefully, he could be back to full health soon. It really was a shame to watch, and I hope that uh, I hope that he has all the support that he needs in his recovery. So, yeah, I wonder. Just I don't have much to add, but I just it, I, I had a couple quick thoughts as you were talking. Um, it seems like the narrative about John Fetterman is either well, it's sort of it's both. He's totally fine and there's nothing to worry about, like the Kara Swisher thing. Or it's the guy's got a disability. How dare you, you know, how dare you uh, critique him on that basis? So which yeah. is it? Is he okay or is he not okay? And I mean, clearly it appears that he's not okay. And as I think we talked about before, maybe in the long term, that that's okay for him, I mean, he can he can learn to adapt and to kind of live his life a different way or something like that. But this stroke just happened in May, and my understanding is it happened even before the Democratic primary. Is that correct? I, I, that's, that's my I understanding heard. as well. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, the, his party had other options they could have explored if he had just sort of backed away and said, hey, look, I've had this medical crisis. I don't know what's happening with my body right now. I really want to serve my state. I really want to serve my country. But, you know, I need to I need to figure out how I'm doing. So you guys really for, you know, for the sake of everybody's good, I need to back away from this. But he didn't do that. Now, who knows? Maybe he thought the recovery would be very quick. And and so it wasn't worth doing that or something like that. We don't know all the ins and outs. But yeah, watching things progress now, it seems uh, it seems pretty dire. And I heard one commentator say that, um, you know, the some of the defense of Fetterman is a little bit of a Democratic Party Flight 93 moment where they just sort of feel like the circumstances are, are just too severe, too serious about the po- prospect of losing the Senate or whatever it may be that, you know, there's just nothing that they're going to allow to, you know, to get in the way of of that goal. So, you know, if Fetterman is, isn't fit for office, oh, well, we'll we'll deal with that after after he gets to Washington. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. And to your point about the this happened before the primaries and you could have bowed out then. I think that's that's part of the issue, right? That this condition was concealed for so long. And it seems to be yeah. that in the past two to three weeks, I haven't been monitoring this insanely closely, but some of the folks I follow on Twitter have been. And it seems like over the past two or three weeks, there was a there was a messaging shift within the Fetterman campaign in which they basically realized they could no longer sort of keep the lid on his condition. And so the rhetoric changed, to your point, from he's totally fine. What You know, this is all a mountain out of a molehill. He's he's. He's completely fine to, hey, he's a stroke survivor. Stop bullying him. He's just a fighter trying to get back. And, and you know, how hard he's fighting to recover from the stroke just shows how great of a senator he'll be because he'll fight for you. Uh, it's a very obvious messaging shift. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's it's probably um, it's, it's just sort of, you know, making uh, John Fetterman into a pawn in this whole game when he really should be focusing on his health and his recovery. So it's all sad. Uh, and it, I think, very revealing to the state of our politics now. Uh, which is why it's especially sad. But yeah, I think if, you know, I, I'm a, I'm an independent, but if I was a Democrat in Pennsylvania, I would be really irritated that this was not identified sooner so that I would have a stronger candidate for my party running against uh, Dr. Oz. Yeah. Well, should we go on to the misinformation section? Let's do it. I'm looking forward to it. All right. This is maybe going to be easy for you or hard because I have four articles today, Andrew. So rather than the normal... The normal three. You've got four to choose from. All right, here we go. So we have one, two, three, four. Here we go. Let's start with this one from Twitter, if true. A Twitter collage, if you will. Campus activists at the University of Wisconsin protested Matt Walsh's visit to campus. You know, the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh. Yes. By spraying graffiti on buildings on their own campus and landmarks across campus and by tearing up the Bible, and in at least one instance, eating the pages of the Bible directly, just ripping the pages of the Bible and eating the paper. All right, that is, that is, that is a story number one. Okay. All right, second story. From The Guardian, if true. Taylor Swift stealth edited her recent music video for the song Anti-Hero after critics accused her and it of fat phobia and fat shaming. All okay. right. Number three. A large Alzheimer's, from Nature, the, the science journal Nature, if true. A large Alzheimer's study finds that exercise is superior to all known Alzheimer's disease drugs. All right. Okay. And number all four. Right. Fox News, if true. For the first time in its history, Chick-fil-A will open on Sunday in select locales. A local franchise owner, I'll just read you an excerpt here. A local franchise owner outside of Dearborn, Michigan, has announced that he has sought and received approval from Chick-fil-A headquarters to close his restaurant location on Fridays instead of Sundays. Muhammad Sayef, 49, is a Yemen-born Muslim American who has owned and operated his restaurant outside of Detroit for almost eight years. Quote, this means so much to me that my company values and respects my own religious beliefs enough to permit me to observe a different day of the week from my fellow restaurant owners, said Sayef while he chatted with me over a spicy chicken deluxe with waffle fries. Fox News' Todd Starnes reporting. Hmm. That is the fourth one. Okay, so any inclinations there based on the four I've outlined? 
Okay, let's let's start with uh, one that I'm I'm almost certain has to be true. Uh, the third one about exercise is the most effective Alzheimer's treatment uh, has to be true. So let's start there. Am I right? That is true. I think that was the easiest one because yeah. uh, it's it is kind of common sense. But I wanted to put it in there because I think this is important for people to remember how great exercise is for you. Uh, so yes, this is this is absolutely true. Uh, let me read to you, Andrew, a, an excerpt from the abstract for this. Alzheimer's disease is a complex neurodegenerative disorder that affects multiple brain regions and is difficult to treat. In this study, we used 22 Alzheimer's disease large-scale gene expression datasets to identify a consistent underlying portrait of Alzheimer's disease gene expression across multiple brain regions. Then we used the portrait as a platform for identifying treatments that could reverse Alzheimer's disease dysregulated expression patterns. So basically what they're saying, I think, is that they have, they have this sort of this collection of data that shows them what these various genes, uh, the, 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 what, the, what various genes in different sort of expression con configurations look like for Alzheimer's disease patients, and then figure out how to reverse the dysregulation of the bad gene expressions that sort of contribute to the Alzheimer's disease. And if I'm, if I'm misstating that, you know, any listeners can definitely weigh in and, and state this the, the correct way. And I will, uh, I will gladly read off the layman's interpretation there. All right. But then they say okay. exercise reversed expressions, expression patterns of hundreds of Alzheimer's disease genes across multiple categories, including cytoskeleton, blood vessel development, mitochondrion, uh, and interferon stimulated related genes. Exercise also ranked as the best treatment across majority of individual region-specific Alzheimer's disease datasets and meta-analysis Alzheimer's disease datasets. And then they go on to say that fluoxetine, which is a common uh, antidepressant, I think, also scored well, and a theoretical combination of both the antidepressant and exercise reversed 549 genes. But exercise is the single best uh, of all the treatments that we know of today. Pretty crazy. So yes, that one is correct, Andrew. Well, my old grandfather, who died just shy of his 104th birthday, he did not have Alzheimer's, wow. uh, and and he did not have much wrong with him really. But uh, and I suppose I should say he exercised in the gym every day until I don't know a few months before he died. So, wow. Uh, yeah, I th I've seen it. I've seen this exercise. That's amazing. Do yeah. its job. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. So that is correct. You've got three left. Okay. All right, Zach. Let's, I, you know, I think the other ones are all pretty good. So I'll just, uh, I'll just take all three together here and then you can tell me uh, if I'm right or wrong. Okay. Here's, my, here's my impression on the remaining three. The, I, I'm going to say that the first one about Matt Walsh is true. Um, though the, yeah, the, the, the details about eating the pages of the Bible are a little bit weird. The red flag to me to begin with is that he would be able to to even speak anywhere at the University of Wisconsin. But I, I'll, I'll say maybe that's true. There's some group that was able to bring him there. So I'm gonna say number one is true. Uh, I'm gonna say number two is also true. I don't really two? know anything, the Taylor Swift one. Okay, yep. I don't know anything about Taylor Swift really. I, um, I, I know her 1989 album mainly because I have Ryan Adams cover of the whole album. He, he covered the entire album and issued it. And so I have that. I, uh, once every once in a while, I'll get some flack actually that I don't write about, uh, as you know, as a popular culture guy that I don't write about Taylor Swift, even though she's such an important figure in the culture, but I don't really know her, but little bits that I've, I've gathered about her recently make me think maybe, uh, she would have done the, the editing thing, uh, as you said, I, I'm going to say that the fourth one about Chick-fil-A is, uh, if it's true, that's really something. I mean, I think it, uh, if you made that up, you did a, a really great job because that really, that really sounds like a, a convincing story. Dearborn, Michigan is like the most, I think has the highest Muslim population in the United does, States yeah. or like per capita or something like that. So like yep. the story is plausible, but I just don't see how a major corporation would like change their whole corporate policy, even in a place like that. Like, so I'm going to say, I, I could be totally wrong, but I'm going to say four is false. One and two are true. Andrew, you are getting good at this because that is exactly correct. So wow. uh, we'll take these, we'll take these one at a time. So All right. the, um, it is just a big Twitter thread, this, this Matt Walsh thing. 
But yes, he was brought to campus by the Young America Foundation, which often brings these conservative speakers, including the Daily Wire folks, you know, Shapiro and Knowles and Walsh, to campuses to give various talks. And students at, well, I think the administration first announced the visit as, you know, horrifically bigoted and harmful, et cetera, et cetera. But they did allow him to come, to their credit. Uh, and then these activists just go crazy and they, and they literally just spray paint stuff everywhere, including profanities, the F word spray painted on campus now because they're mad that Matt Walsh is coming. Uh, and then, yeah, they stage this protest where they're ripping pages out of the Bible and at least one person is eating the Bible. Now there is a, there's a Flannery O'Connor short story, one of my favorite short stories of hers in which a character eats the pages of scripture. But this is a very clear literary reference to uh, the passage of Ezekiel. You know, your words are sweeter than honey. Um, I don't think the protester had that metaphor in mind when, uh, no. when he was doing this. So, but, but it did happen. So that's the, that one. The Taylor Swift one, yes, her new song is called Antihero. Um, I am of the opinion, Andrew, that Taylor Swift has never had a good album. And it's even a stretch to say that she's had a good song. So that's about my take on in, on Taylor Swift songs, but she's obviously incredibly popular. And her new song, Antihero, features in the music video a section in which the character steps on a scale. And as she steps on a scale, and this is Taylor Swift, her doppelganger, who's just Taylor Swift, obviously, you know, cut in, uh, looks at the scale and the original version of the video, the scale, there were no numbers, it just said fat. And then the doppelganger, you know, shakes her head disapprovingly. The video was edited and the new version of it there's nothing shown on the scale. So the intent is still there. She just steps on the scale and her doppelganger looks at the scale, but you don't look at it. You don't see it as the viewer and then shakes her head disapprovingly. But um, from, the, from the Guardian, the article about this, uh, it says, the video for Taylor Swift's song, Antihero, the lead single from her new album, Midnight's, has been altered days after its initial release to remove the word fat from one of its scenes. In the original clip directed by Swift, the 32-year-old singer and songwriter steps onto a bathroom scale whose dial spins to the reading fat. In the new version of the clip, viewable below, Swift steps onto the scale, receiving a look of disapproval from a doppelganger, also played by Swift, but no reading is shown. So there you go. Okay. Now, as a, you know, as a father of, again, young kids, I feel like having young kids shapes my opinion on almost everything, to some degree or other. Uh, you know, it's super important that my kids don't feel the obligation of unhealthy body image things. And it's, it is, um, it's a bit jarring. I imagine for a young teenager to see a, uh, you know, a thin, very popular artist step onto a scale and then have the scale read fat because then that person looks in the, looks in the mirror and says to themselves, well, look at me, you know, I'm not that thin, whatever am I fat? So I, I understand the argument to that, you know, on that level, but my read of the, of the song is that she is, really kind of calling out these false body image standards anyway, and just complaining about how her own self is holding her to this unrealistic standard. But as, as is the case with, um, with music and with art, there is obviously the, the potential for misinterpretation. I do think that artists like Taylor Swift have to be really careful with how they convey these things because their audience, especially in this case, you know, young teen girls who struggle with these things to an even greater extent than Taylor herself may are really watching and paying really careful attention. So I'm actually, I'm sympathetic to the, I don't think it's fat phobic to say, for example, that, you know, there's not, there's no such thing as healthy at any size. Um, but I do think we have to be really careful about how we, the messages we show anyone, but especially young people and especially young girls about, um, you know, how they should view, view and take care of their own bodies. Yeah, I agree. Okay. The final one. Yes. Totally fake. Uh, you're right. Dearborn, Michigan is, I think the largest single enclave of Arab uh arab people uh and arab muslims outside of uh arabia or outside of the middle east um so yeah that's why i chose that for this location for this fake story it did raise to me an interesting question though what if there was a and maybe there has been and it's been rejected but what if there was a muslim american uh who was a franchise owner and said look i want to practice my religion this even goes goes to the sort of the the liberal post-liberal question we were talking about you know what if they say i want to practice my religion and i do it on fridays can i close my shop on fridays i wonder what I wonder what the response would be from Chick-fil-A headquarters. So we shall see. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine that they would, that they Go would change it. their policy for, uh, for, yeah. I mean, if the whole thing about the store is 
they're closed, you know, they're franchises. Yes. They're, you know, independently operated or whatever. But I mean, if you're a Chick-fil-A store, you have to be closed on Sunday. That's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Hard to imagine that they would change that, but who knows? Yeah. They, they probably wouldn't, but, but maybe it'll come up someday. Uh, I mean, do you think that you like, by the time your kids are grown, Chick-fil-A will still be closed on Sunday? It's hard to imagine. Do you remember there were, I remember when it was a few years ago or a couple of years ago, there was something where Chick-fil-A reneged on giving a donation to like an evangelical Christian group yes. or something like that. Yeah, and it was the I Fellowship of Christian of, Athletes. Was that what it was? Yep. Yeah. Well, I remember thinking at the time, you know, maybe that isn't such a big deal. I don't know. But I mean, I guess it, it sort of signaled to the world like, oh, maybe we're going to back off a little bit our sort of Christian thing. And then I remember, uh, uh, you know, driving around on a Sunday and, and you know, feeling a hankering for a chicken, fried chicken sandwich. And I, and of course, then I remembered it Sunday and it was closed. And then I, I kind of felt annoyed. I thought, you know, if you guys aren't going to like just, dub, you know, go all, go all in on the Christian thing, then it's kind of annoying that you're not open on a Sunday like everybody else. So, but I don't know. I guess I've come back around to thinking it's probably a good thing that there's one very popular brand in America that says we, we will keep sabbath so yeah i actually wish that every brand in america kept sabbath uh i mean this used to be the case in europe as you probably well know andrew but uh the nice thing is when all the restaurants are closed on sundays what happens is people eat dinner at their home with their family so uh yeah it can be nice to go out to dinner with your family more often you're on the go you know you're like you know taking one kid back and forth to soccer so you stop at a fast food restaurant like it's more often that's sort of atomized the eating out experience And so having that not be an option actually sort of force, it's a forcing function and people spend more time at home with each other. So that's overall a good thing. So independent of any religious Sabbath reasons, which I, you know, I also hold those independent of those. I just think it's a good thing for one day a week to be set aside, uh, for, you know, for, for activities other than capitalist, capitalist economic activities. Um, all right. Well, that's the misinformation. So you're on, you're on a little streak here. I think you've gotten like three or four weeks, right, Andrew, after you started a little slow on this, I've, I've not been able to fool you for a while. I live for this, Zach. I, I was seriously, I was like, I woke up just this morning. I couldn't wait to get after it today and to, I love to it. see if I could, if I love could the energy, love the enthusiasm. Yeah. I love, I love the segment. I know we have one or two detractors, but I, uh, I, I think on the whole, it is a lot of fun to do the misinformation. You know, I, I took Pat's, uh, I took Pat's complaint to heart though. I tried not to, to, you know, do too much dunking today. So I hope, hope I, uh, had some balance there. He might not have liked your Fetterman, uh, comments though, but who knows? We'll find I don't know. Out. Yeah. Well, let us know, Pat. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the close read section. We actually have a shorter close read today, which is probably good because we're running a little bit, uh, a little bit over time from where we want to be anyway. So we'll, uh, we'll do this pretty quickly, but we have today a, a, an article based on the author of a book. I mentioned him last week. Uh, and the article is called the boys feminism left, sorry, the boys feminism left behind. This is by Richard Reeves, who was a scholar at the Brookings institution. And he's writing this for common sense. The, the news outlet owned by and started by Barry Weiss. Richard is also the author of a book called, hold on, let me pull it up. It's called of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. And Richard Reeves is a self-identified feminist who believes strongly in egalitarianism, in gender equality, etc. And he says it's precisely for those reasons that he's arguing now for the opportunities of young boys. And some of his policy positions and proposals are very interesting. And, uh, you know, there are certainly things with which I would disagree with Richard on, but I found this article compelling. I find this whole topic fascinating. And I think that this will only grow in importance as, uh, as our boys who are right now, you know, between the ages of zero and 10, grow up into men and find themselves really sort of shorn of the boyhood that maybe you and I enjoyed, Andrew, to our to your earlier points. Uh, and also really just at a big disadvantage compared to women uh, across a whole variety of axes. So, um, Andrew, do you want to give a brief overview of this uh, article and then we'll talk through it? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the the, uh, the subtitle or the kind of lead that is underneath the title, uh, The Boy's Feminism Left Behind, says, you don't upend a 12,000-year social order without experiencing cultural side effects. And some of what I really appreciated about what Reeves does in the article is just state things that are on the surface very obvious, but sometimes those are the most important things to remind people of. Um, 
here we are living in this world which is radically different than the world of you know two generations ago three four five etc but um in the grand scheme of things what we're experiencing here with regard to the you know the the role of men and women in society is extremely new um he says that you know for twelve thousand years basically since human beings developed agriculture um you know, almost every human society has had a patriarchy. And by patriarchy, he simply means ruled by men. Men have been in charge. Um, and so, you know, he he wants to say, uh, by changing that, certain things have happened. And the thing that he really wants to, to point our attention to is that the rise that women have experienced, um, which he identifies as a very good thing, uh, has nonetheless resulted in a decline among men. And he provides some basic statistics. I'm sure that maybe his book link study will go into a lot more of them. But, you know, he he points out that in 1970, 58% of undergraduates were men and 42% female. Now it's flipped. 58% are um, are female and, and men are much lower. And it goes, sort of, you know, lots of other statistics from there. Um, but the part that really struck me the most, Zach, was the way that he's talking about not not so much um, the the college part, but even younger, the the part about boys in school. Uh, and he notes that almost one in four schoolboys are diagnosed with having a developmental disability. And he remarks that just the way, the whole way that kind of our school system is structured now is increasingly geared towards uh, girls instead of boys. Um, so you know the kind of the kind of things that used to be considered more normal in a school setting for boys are now considered very serious problems, like you know, fighting, roughhousing, um, you know, being rambunctious, talking out of turn, all that kind of stuff, um, which interests me a lot as somebody who used to be a boy and as somebody who's the father of a boy. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's creating a, a generation of boys who feel ill at ease in a school setting, who don't feel like they belong. Um, and the problem then gets worse because there isn't a great outlet for them from there. Um, uh, he uh, he notes here that um, sorry I'm just looking at the document while we're while I'm sort of summarizing it but um, it's also then sort of created um, a problem where um, men are unemployed or underemployed they don't feel motivated to work and um, it, it has been accompanied by what uh, Reeves calls a dangerous political vacuum where men feel like they um, they are unrepresented, where their concerns are not not taken seriously, and where they are driven to um, support political candidates and movements which may not be entirely beneficial for society at large. He also talks about how, um, you know, he says here that um, with the end of the patriarchy, it says it has broken the chains of dependency that held women down, but also held the nuclear family together. And then talks about the rise in um, uh, women-led households, single-parent households, <clears throat> excuse me, and you know so many children, and especially uh, boys growing up without fathers. So I think that's the long and the short of it. I have a, you know a number of thoughts that have sort of sprung to my mind from that uh, brief uh, little overview, but I'll just throw it to you, Zach, and see see what you think. So just to your last point there about uh, absent fathers, there's a comedian, I forget his name. I don't watch a lot of his stuff, but I was watching a little bit of his, his work out a couple months ago. And he, uh, he said, he said, Ben, do you want to know how to be a good father? It's very simple. He said, there's one key, one thing you have to do to not, uh, not to, to, one thing you have to do to be a great father. And that's don't abandon your kids. Yeah. And he repeated it. Don't abandon. That's it. That's all you have to do now. And, and, and he highlighted the sort of difference in, um, in expectations, which is obviously unfair, but basically, you know, to be a great mom, moms have to do all this stuff he was saying, and to be a great dad, the most important thing is that you're there, that you're around. Yeah. And this is borne out by the social science research, uh, that, that families who have present fathers, families who, uh, fathers who do not abandon their families create just by virtue of being around much higher opportunities for their kids. I think that's a huge part of this problem that Reeves certainly talks about just in this article. Uh, I want to get his book. I think I mentioned this last week. I want to get his book to to learn more of his argument and understand this because he must go into this in great detail as well. But the disappearance of fathers is a huge story in the disadvantage of our boys. And so I, you know, I encourage all of our listeners to read up more on, uh, on how much of a difference just having a father around makes, but I think that's a big part of this key. Um, 
maybe we can start with like the beginning of his the beginning of his claims, Andrew, which are that boys are now at an absolute disadvantage relative to girls. But he applauds everything that has happened so far. He just thinks that it sort of happened in a way that disadvantages boys. So he says, you know, I take as a as a given the positive that we've called gender equality and women's liberation. Uh, and all those things are great for women. Uh, we just have to ask about the externalities and the ways that they affect boys. But I actually think he sort of jumps the gun a little bit on declaring those things great for women. And I don't mean, when I, when I say those things, I don't mean that, you know, women's liberation in the sense of uh, women being able to make their own choices is a bad thing. Far from it. That is a good thing. What I mean is that um, he is overlooking uh, a vast body of social science literature that suggests that women are actually less happy than they were in the 1970s. So for example, I'm looking at a looking at an article right now by Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers, both at the Wharton School. And this is called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. You can, you can find this in a simple Google search. This is, this is from 2008, so it's a little bit dated. But these authors track a, an absolute and a relative decline of happiness among women since the 1970s. Let me just read the abstract here. By many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved over the past 35 years, yet we show that measures of subjective well-being indicate that women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. The paradox of women's declining relative well-being is found across various data sets, measures of subjective well-being, and is pervasive across demographic groups and industrialized countries. Relative declines in female happiness have eroded a gender gap in happiness in which women in the 1970s typically reported higher subjective well-being than did men. These declines have continued and a new gender gap is emerging, one with higher subjective well-being for men. Very interesting. Um, so he takes it as a, as a given, again, that just, you know, the, the, the changes that women have seen since the 1970s have been uniformly good. And that's true if you accept a couple things, like, for example, that, you know, higher income is good, right? If you have higher income, that's always a good thing. But if the higher income, for example, is accompanied by lower happiness, that's not a good thing. Take, for example, the very simple maxim that money can't buy happiness. You know, you look at, you look at, I don't know, an artisan, a woodworker who's really confident in his craft and loves doing his job and works at it for 10 hours a day, but builds beautiful things and ends the day always satisfied with his work. And you compare his, his satisfaction to that of an investment banker who uh, you know, does nothing but buy and chew up and spit out companies. And he does that for millions and maybe billions of dollars, but he's absolutely miserable. Like one of those is a fulfilling life and one of those is not. So we can't simply use economic, uh, economic well-being as a, as a proxy for goodness. So I think it is important to sort of not just assume that because, um, because people have earned, uh, earned their places, earned them, earned for themselves, higher places on the, the income ladder that they, that that's a good thing. So I just want to make that comment, uh, uh off the bat. This Shift is the thing, the right? Yeah, go ahead. Can I just really quickly interject yeah. and say, you know, I mean, this is the thing that used to be called the two income trap, right? And there were even people like Elizabeth Warren who said this was a bad thing. That if we're if if our highest ideal in society is economic growth, um, then the only way to keep growing is to have more people doing more work. And um, but why do we have to have that? Why? Like, why can't we have half as many jobs as we do? Like, we don't need to have like, you know, why to your point, like why would why would somebody be happier? I mean, there are plenty of wonderful jobs that a woman or a man can do and find fulfillment in, but there are lots of jobs that men and women are miserable doing. And given the choice, they wouldn't do them. So why are yes. we celebrating that? Like who wants to sit exactly. in a cubicle all day? I don't. Right. Yeah, that's exactly so, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, this is something that we've talked about previously. I've talked about at length on credal, credal podcasts, uh, other credal podcasts. Um, Alec McGillis talks about this a little bit in his interview with me about his book on Amazon and just how even, um, Amazon jobs, these like rote automated jobs and warehouses are far less fulfilling than the dangerous steel mill jobs, uh, of the, you know, middle part of the century. Oh yeah. So yeah, this, these, these are conversations very much worth having. The other part of this that I didn't even, you know, I'll just dip my toe in the waters here and then drop the mic and move on, um, is the, uh, the changes to contraception. And once contraception comes on the scene, we actually see a major societal shift happen in a way that is often viewed as being, you know, uniformly beneficial to women, but that really simplifies the science. And you don't have to take my word for it. Janet Yellen, uh, you know, Janet Yellen, the um, uh, Federal Reserve, right? Uh, I think that was her position. I think so. Let me double check. I'm going to fact check myself here. Yeah. Uh, Janet Yellen, I'm sorry, Secretary of the Maybe Treasury. Maybe Secretary. Yeah, yeah. 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 
Wasn't she previously in the Federal Reserve? Yeah, yeah, okay. She was, yeah, okay. She was the chair of the Federal Reserve from 2014 to 2018. Now the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. So Janet Yellen, smart, very smart per economist, obviously. In 1996, she had an article uh, with several other co-authors, including her, her husband, I think George Akerlof is his name, that talked about how uh, the birth control pill actually disadvantaged women in several key ways. Now, they didn't go so far, I think, to say it was a net negative, but they pointed out that it resulted in uh, women being pressured into having sex outside of marriage and maybe most importantly, having no bargaining power to force a marriage when they were faced with an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, you know, the, avail the availability of abortion on demand has obviously exacerbated this dynamic as well. And so women actually lose the bargaining power that they had previously to, to uh, marry men. And to my point about absent fathers, tie men down uh, into a, a stable and beneficial family life that has again, time and time again, uh, you know, look at Mark Regnerus's work, for example, contributed to an overall uh, uh, sentiment of happiness. So those are really important things to, to sort of get right, I think. And, and, and Richard Reeves, as much as I appreciate what he's doing, talking about boys being disadvantaged, uh, I think he should just look at a little bit of his sort of assumptions here and recognize that the end-all be-all is not economic income. It's not just making money. Right. Yeah, good point. Um, maybe we can just talk a little bit more about the, the boys thing here. Uh, I, one of the things that Richard Reeves talks about is the, uh, the absolute disadvantage that boys have cognitively because they mature slower than girls. And as someone yeah. who is the father of uh, you know, young kids, I, don't, I can't say if I've seen this like super dramatically, but I think it'll become more dramatic as my kids get older. Um, and I don't think my son will be as mature as my current eight-year-old is when he is eight. I think it does seem to be already that there's sort of a, a, a different maturity curve there. And that's a totally fine and natural thing and can certainly be a good thing. It just means, you know, boys and girls are different. And uh, that's something that, yeah. you know, that's a truth that is, is sometimes uh, controversial these days, but it shouldn't be. Boys and girls are different and they have different brains and they have different hormones that regulate the gene expression that forms all this collection of traits and development in the brain and physically. And that's just not, this shouldn't be a controversial um, thing to say. So boys and girls are different. And one of the things that Reeves proposes is basically starting boys in school later so that at equivalent grade levels, uh, boys will always be a year older than girls. We basically change the cutoff for boys to enter school later than girls so that and I don't even know the, the ages, but you know, like if, if the girls in the class are six years old, the boys will be seven. So the, basically just buys boys an extra year of maturity, let their brains develop a little more, let the frontal lobes, uh, uh, let the frontal lobes grow and, uh, and they'll be more ready for the challenges of school. And uh, yeah. I listened to a, a, an interview between Reeves and Barry Weiss, and he made the point that I think it was Reeves, maybe it was, was Weiss, but said that, um, being a father or being a mother of boys has sometimes been compared to uh, just sort of like being the frontal lobe of two other, you know, of two other or three other human beings because mm -hmm. these boys just don't, their brains don't develop and they don't have the, the capacity to make risk calculations uh, until they reach a higher age than girls would. So uh, the idea is just delay the start of school for boys and help them make up the gap that way. It seems to me to be a very common sense, straightforward way to attack it. Uh, and I don't really see any downsides. Yeah, I don't know. I my instinct is that I don't love that idea. I, mainly because I I don't know that it really solves the problem of just the world of education itself being so mm. much more female. You know, he t he points to, you know, just obviously yeah. like the overwhelming majority of teachers are female, fewer and fewer males than ever are getting into the profession. Um he actually makes the point that relative to, you know, we're told that like there's a crisis in the STEM disciplines that not enough girls are in STEM, but actually far more girls have gone into STEM disciplines than boys have gone into education in mm. over the last 40 years. Um, so I found that to be really interesting. You know, I wonder if something, you know, my, my children hate it when I advocate something like this, but you know, something like just maybe going back to like single sex education would be better or you know, finding, finding some way to just really approach the whole, the whole question of how to educate a boy and how to educate a girl differently because boys and girls are different. Um, I think especially with the physic, the physicality, the physical part of it. Now, both of my children are very, both are, are very physical and that sort of thing. But, you know, on the whole, boys sort of have, we know, sort of need just sort of much more of an outlet for physical stuff. And, you know, something, something that occurred to me was, 
when I was in when I was in school, I don't know if this was the same with you, Zach. It was already the case that if you got into a serious fight, like you got into a serious fist fight with another boy in high school, um, you would be in serious trouble. I mean, like you mm-hmm. you could be like put in handcuffs by the school resource officer. I mean, like you it, seriously, like you could be charged with a crime, right? And I think yeah. that's only gotten worse, much worse. But in previous generations, that wasn't the case at all. Um, I remember Rusty Reno wrote something about this some years ago and just talked about, you know, witnessing a fist fight between a couple boys in the school. And the vice principal just stood there and watched it happen. When it got just a little bit too crazy, he did then finally kind of break it up. The boys both blooded each other's noses. And the, the vice principal said, all right, you got the blood out. You got it out of your system. Back to class, guys. Wow. You know, hardcore. Um, yeah. And you see this in old movies, right? Like from the fifties, you see like a couple boys, like getting in a scrap in the, you know, next to the lockers. And then, you know, the principal runs over and breaks it up. And, uh, and then that's kind of the end of the story. Uh, it just sort of goes to show you like the way that kind of the, the, the way that we now think of, of what was once considered to be a pretty natural, just kind of spillover of kind of yeah. a, a natural way that, that boys express themselves is now considered just absolutely beyond the pale. I mean, it could, it could end up getting you charged with something worst case scenario, you know, best case scenario, you're probably going to end up having to see some kind of health, you know, mental health professional and may end up sure. getting diagnosed with some kind of mind altering ADHD, yeah. ADHD drugs or something like that. Right. So, you know, that, that's my two cents, I suppose, on the, the question of like, what, you know, what's the silver bullet here? How, how do we handle it? No, I think that's good. The, um, it's, it, it occurs to me then that perhaps the possibility of holding boys back a year is almost a band-aid, right? We can't, we can't overturn like the education system overnight, but maybe we can start there. Yeah. We can start there and say, here's what we're going to do from a policy standpoint. We're going to recommend that boys start a year later than girls. And here's, here's the you know, relative cutoff. Every child is different, et cetera. So ultimately, this is a choice the parents can make, but here's the recommendations. Uh, and then... The longer term one is, okay, we're going to sort of reinvest in single sex education. I really like that idea a lot from you. Uh, We're going to really encourage men to get more involved in the classroom. We're going to incentivize men becoming teachers. Uh, Because that, that I think is a really important one that Reeves mentions as well, that if you don't have men who are role models in the classroom, boys are going to be inherently less interested. Like if, if the, if all the men in the schools are just the PE teacher and the football coach, you know, like who are they going to want to want to be like, right? right? They're going to blow off their studies to get better at football or to lift more weights because that's, yep. those are the role models that they're presented with. If however, you know, think of like, um, what's that movie? Uh, Jaime Escalante, Stand and Deliver or uh, Dead Poet Society. You know, men can yeah. have a profound impact in the classroom. Obviously women can too, but we're talking about role models for boys. And, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want about how men and women are exactly the same and there are no differences and yada, yada, yada. But the fact is that boys look up to men. Uh, and if you don't have the men in positions there for boys to look up to, they're going to supplant them with alternate role models. Um, you know, and it, it might be, uh, might be a football coach and maybe that's, you know, a good football coach can be a good role model for sure. But, um, it, th- that football coach is normally not going to inspire the kid to, you know, go pursue a STEM education, for example. Um, he might encourage him in sort of like the, the, the manly virtues of strength and grit, and courage and all that. And all those are great things. Uh, but it's also good to have men in the classroom encouraging boys to be good students because uh, that is, after all, what an education is about. So I like your I like your sort of paradigm shifting um, alternative, uh, Andrew. I don't think Reeves mentions the single sex education thing, but he definitely mentions the teachers in the classroom thing. But I like I really like your single sex single sex education idea. I mean, you know, having been a high school boy, uh, it's I, I can state from experience just how distracting it can be in the classroom environment to have boys and girls in the same classroom. And, uh, even that alone, I think it make a huge, a huge difference. Um, and it, it just, it, it removes the competitive element. It removes the, the sexual tension element, all of that stuff and allows, allows students to focus on being students. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I'm of two minds. I think that boys and girls together in school is okay. But I think in light of the fact that, uh, there just aren't that many male teachers and, you know, the paradigm seems to be geared towards females, I think, uh, single sex education could be one one way to address that problem. I don't know though. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, we're almost at time, Andrew. But anything to uh, to add to this? No, it's an interesting topic, and I think we could go in a lot deeper in uh, in kind of tangential issues related to this. But uh, I think this is a, an, an article 
worth per- people's attention, even though I think you've pointed out some pretty important um, things that are missing from his calculation here. Great. Well, let's uh, wrap up that then, and we'll move on to the recommendation section. I will just add uh, that you should go check out the interview uh, of Richard Reeves on the on the Honestly podcast with Barry Weiss, and uh, check out his book if you want to read more on this, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Okay. Recommendations, Andrew. What do you have? Okay. I am recommending the relatively new album by Björk. Uh, the Icelandic uh, star. Uh, I've been a fan of hers for a really long time. She is a really interesting person. She's kind of a, um, she's a popular iteration of the avant-garde. Everything she does is very uh, provocative in certain respects. And her new album, Fasora, which is a, a Latin neologism, which means a female digger. Um, she's, it, it's got these like very earthy themes to this album yeah. about her native land of Iceland. Um, it's also got some really interesting stuff in the lyrics about some of the very things we've been talking about, patriarchy and matriarchy and sort of, um, she, uh, she's avant-garde, but also like her, her imagery about being a woman is like, in a sense, like very traditional and very, um, uh, very, it's very, in a sense, like very, um, controversial for that reason. And it, it, this album, I don't know that she would appreciate my saying this, but this album, reminds me that in certain respects, the what is avant-garde is more uh, traditional and more, in a sense, conservative nowadays. So mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, and plus it just sounds great. It's, it's just full of all kinds of interesting um, instruments. It's got bass clarinets all over it, of all things. It's got lots of different orchestral instruments, and it's also got her typical kind of electronic stuff. So I highly recommend it. I'm going to be writing something about it for somebody at some point. It's, uh, How do you spell really Björk? I've never heard her stuff. B J O umlaut R K Björk. Okay, so I've seen the. All right, I've seen the name then. Okay. Yeah. But I don't think I've. I mean, unless there's been a radio hit that I may have heard somewhere. You, a restaurant probably somewhere not anytime recently. In the '90s, she had a few radio hits, but. Um, okay. Anyway, it's uh, it's not yeah. everybody's cup of tea, but it is my cup of tea. Okay. Nice. Uh, yeah, I told you I would do it live, Andrew, because I said I was going to come up with a recommendation on the fly since I did not start our conversation with a recommendation. But as I was, as I was thinking, uh, or talking, giving you the misinformation and talking about a Flannery O'Connor short story, I think that would be a recommendation I would have for, for listeners today. I love the Flannery O'Connor short stories, every single one of them. Um, some, some a little bit less opaque than others. Uh, but go pick up a Flannery O'Connor short story. Next time the, the weather turns cold and gray and you're not outside. You want to curl up in front of the fire with a good book, grab a Flannery O'Connor short story. You can read them in a sitting, at least most of them, and uh, and take a listen. She's just a fascinating Southern Gothic writer, uh, really one of a kind. And all of her all of her uh, all of her stories are like an onion, you know, like they just have layers that you can peel back. And as soon as you think you've sort of gotten it, there's more there's more to uh, to uncover there. So I always enjoy those. One year, Sally and I read them for Lent. Uh, the whole short story collection uh, in Lent, which was, you know, on average, roughly a story a day, uh, a little less than I think. Uh, and that was a really fun spiritual discipline because obviously Flannery was a devout Catholic and all of her her stories are chock full of theological themes. Uh, so that'd be a fun thing to do um, this Lent or maybe even Advent. But yeah, that, I think that'd be my recommendation for today. Um, so definitely an, an improvised recommendation, Andrew, but uh, that's what I'll go with for today. Man, Zach, the other day, I was thinking so strongly of a good man is hard to find. Like I was, that yeah. story, it was just like haunting me that that story. But it just suddenly occurred to me that you might know what is the name of the one where the the college student throws the book in the face of the old lady in the doctor's office. Do you remember that one? Um, yeah, I definitely remember that one. That uh, man, that one is so good too. I love that one. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put on. you on the spot. They, I can't. No, no, no. I can never um, remember the names of any of them. Same, same. So uh, Sally is way better at remembering the names of the. Uh, uh of the individual stories i always remember what i think it's revelation isn't it is that it yeah that's right i bet that's right um like she sees the like people like in the in a kind of parade at the end or something like that and it's a great one i don't know i might i I probably have three or four of them muddled all at once no this is um yeah it is that it is that one because it's ruby turpin um that's it that's it Yep. Yep. That's it. And the, yeah, the, the parade up to heaven at the end is fantastic. You know, there's a, um, I think it's Paul Ely who wrote a, wrote a sort of critique of Flannery O'Connor's racism back when, back when people were renaming dorms that were named after oh, yeah. her because she was a racist, et cetera. 
he had this ridiculous take on that story because in that 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 march up to heaven the black people are in front of the white people clearly like an inversion right the kingdom of god those who are last shall be first yeah. and Ely's, you know Ely's galaxy brain take on this was oh no but still it's still a problem because there's still segregation because it's black people and then white people so even for flannery o'connor heaven still has segregation it was like oh my, oh my goodness dude you're just completely missing the point here but that's okay um you know uh yeah but anyway that's a, that's a great short story and um yeah we should talk i have this i have this this dream uh one day andrew of making a ballad of ballad of buster scruggs style take series of vignettes each of which is a flannery connor short story that the coen brothers direct so just you know if i if, if i'm swinging for the fences that's what i want to do i think that's a, a worthy goal hopefully we have some rich rich listeners that might want to put some money behind oh, something yeah. like that yeah if anyone wants to talk about doing that going in on an investment opportunity talk to me <laughs> all right on that note we'll wrap there thanks so much for joining us to another episode of what a week Write in with your feedback, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.